So today we are looking in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and Paul is uh, confronting some false teaching, some things that were going to negatively affect the church. I mean, they're, they're shocking things that were going on, of course, in Corinth, but also as this is presented, you're like, man, I can't believe they're starting to get this confused. Um, one of the things Paul is going to do as we look at this text, we're going to look at the first 11 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. So if you're looking at that, you can kind of glance at that real quickly. And you'll see that we have this um, great hope in a resurrection because of the historical account that Paul is going to bring before us. And so he's going to help us see that. And then as you move forward, we're going to see the major issue when you get to verse 12 in this text that the issue is that some were saying, there's no resurrection from the dead. And Paul's going to have to address that, and he's going to address that very clearly because he knows that really the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. As an apostle, they were preaching these, this message, and this message, uh, foundational to the message, is that Jesus was raised from the dead and that we would too follow him in that those who had trusted in him. Uh, I read an article, or else I think it was a, a guy had written different things, and he was talking about something that he had read this week, and he, he was talking about like some of the engineering issues that were tied to uh, when, when the, the towers came down at 9-11, uh, after the planes crashed into them. If many of you saw that video more than you wanted to see it, and over and over you see these towers sitting there smoking, uh, and then they just crumble. And uh, there was all kinds of things surrounding that, but they did, you know, of course, they're going to research it and try to figure out all the details uh, regarding that. Uh, large buildings like those have structural, like, redundancies built into them, so that one structural component, uh, if, if it, you know, is compromised, the building will stand. But in this case, uh, under the stress of multiple areas compromised, that built, those buildings just fell to the ground. It's interesting for us when we're looking at Christianity and you're thinking about it, and maybe some of you are exploring the possibility that you would put your trust in Christ. You have to understand there are some things that are absolutely essential in the Christian message. And one of those is the resurrection. And one of the things that's happening here is they don't understand that if you try to take away one of those structural components like the resurrection and Two, those who've trusted in Christ will be raised from the dead. The whole thing falls. And so Paul wants them to understand with clarity uh, what the actual Christian gospel is and to hold fast to it to the very end. So I would say every person here, if you're listening today, you're a part of this service, every person here must understand that the resurrection is central to the gospel message and that that. Being raised from the dead as those who put their trust in Christ, that is central to our message. We do not think that you're just going to live this life and then you're going into the ground and that's it. The Christian message is uh, much more robust than that, much more hope-filled, and we're going to look at that uh, today. First, again, we'll look at the resurrection as a historical thing that happened uh, with Jesus. And then you're going to be reminded as you move through this text one of the catastrophic consequences if the resurrection is not true, and the other one is is the great blessing if it is. And so we'll look at those two and compare them. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 11. And some people say, like, this is a summary 
at least some of these verses, are just a summary of the gospel. So it also, though, again, focuses in on the truth that Jesus was historically validated as raised from the dead. Verse 1, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. For I am the least among the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So Paul says, we brought this gospel to you. What is that? Christ died for our sins. Christ was buried, Christ was raised on the third day, and Christ appeared. Those are the things. When you look at that, you want to say, sometimes people ask you, what is the gospel? What is the good news? It is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man. He dwelt among us, and in His dwelling, it ultimately led to the cross. And on the cross, He died for our sins. But that's not the end of the story. The the story continues and you say he was buried and then he was raised and then he appeared. People saw it and observed it and understood it and grasped it. It's it's a beautiful uh, message for us to understand. It is a story that does not end in sorrow but great joy. And we see that on display here. So they preach this good news and this message not only... Uh, it motivated them, but it empowered them to go out. That's the interesting thing about the witnesses. The witnesses to the events went out into the world with this message, a supernatural message, a, a shocking message, and they carried that out into the world. These people face greater trials than you and I could ever imagine for the cause, and they did so because they believed in the resurrection. So we're going to look at this. We say, first of all, you see this historical account. It's very clear. The resurrection was affirmed by multiple witnesses. It was written down and it was died for. That's kind of one of the things you will see as you study about the early uh, church. And so then the next step as we move forward, we say, Paul is going to clarify the the resurrection by uh, not only showing us this historical account, but also he's going to demonstrate kind of the consequences, really the catastrophic consequences if, this, if we end up with a dead Christ is kind of what he's going to say. So look at verse 12 and 13. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul says, if, if you're saying, look, there's no future resurrection There's no future for you. That's kind of what he's saying. If he's saying there's no future for you, 
the reality is you're saying that Christ was never raised. If you're kind of going that route, like if we're going to speak of the resurrection, we're saying Jesus had to be raised. And so if you're going to preach that, you've got to preach the other that follows. At the heart of the gospel, Christ crucified, buried, and raised. And if that is true, then why would that not be true uh, for us? And we'll lay that out as we move forward. Now, look at verse 14. Some of the implications if we have a dead Christ are this. One is that preaching is not true. I mean, you know, these preachers, it's all a sham. That's one of the things he says. And if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain, it's worthless. It's empty. Uh, You know, a lot of times people will say, you know, preaching, Paul said, was... Uh, was the most foolish kind of form of, of communicating or whatever. But if, if it's not true, how much greater is that? I mean, that's, it's like, what are you doing here? Why are you here today if this is not true? And why would you be listening to me? And some of you might say, I'm not, really. I mean, I look like I am, but you lost me 30 minutes ago. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, the deal is, in this moment, when you're looking at this, this message, he says, it is vain. We are not preaching anything with hope. We're preaching a dead Savior. This is not something that is absolutely true. So the other thing is, is Paul says, like, what a frightening thing for us to be blaspheming God. That's what he says in verses 15 and 16. We're misrepresenting God. If If this is not true, then we are misrepresenting God. We're not speaking the truth about God. We are lying to people. We are building up something that's not actually there. Then you kind of say, okay, well, what does that do for the hearer? If you say, man, the preacher here is not, um, he, he, is, he is preaching something that's meaningless and worthless, and the preacher is also lying about God, then what does that mean for the hearer? If there is a dead Christ, if he were not raised, what would that mean? In verse 14, it says, and your faith, you'll notice that at the very end, is in vain. Again, vanity, you think about Ecclesiastes, where it's vanity of vanities, all is meaningless, all is empty, all is worthless. Like your faith is worthless if Christ hasn't been raised. You're believing and hoping in something without any hope. You're really, when you think about the world who's, And this is the deal. The world has a lot of saviors out there, right? There are all different ways that the world tells you that your life is going to be secure and filled and full of hope. And it's all of these promises, but promises that really they can't really fulfill. And so in this text, when you're looking at this, he's saying, listen, if this is the case, your faith is in vain. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your Sin. So not only is your faith just empty and meaningless, you're still in your sins. Sin has not been defeated. Christ's sacrifice was empty. If that's the case, sin, death, hell, and the grave have held Jesus. If that's the case, then guess what? You're still under it. You're still under sin's power. You're still under sin's dominion. You are still under sin's wages. You are still without hope. If, that's the, if you are, are, are trusting in a dead Christ, your situation is horrendous. Like you have no hope. 
That's where Paul says, this leaves you. But then you might say, well, what does that mean for the dead? What about those who trusted in Christ and now they're dead? What does it mean for those people? Verse 18, then those who also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Guess what it means for somebody that meant so much to you. For someone who sacrificed their life in service for Christ and His church. For somebody who led you into the faith. For somebody who modeled that for you. For somebody you long to see one day. Someone you thought, one day I will see them again. They're on their deathbed and you are whispering into to their ears, one day we will see each other again. I long for that day. Guess what? They are not asleep, as Paul would call someone who has died in the Lord. They perished. They are no more. There is no hope for them if this is the case. They have gone down to the grave with a dead Savior who had no hope to no power to raise them from the dead. He's trying to say to that Corinthian church, listen, that, that's the deal, and that's something for us. We have to remember, sometimes people will say, you know, I don't really want to talk about the Bible very much, or maybe they live their lives where they say, I'm a Christian, but I don't really read the Bible or want to know it or discuss it, which seems odd anyway, but not only that, it's like, listen, these things really matter. What you believe matters. What we say we are holding on to matters. It is so important for us to understand what the pillars of the faith are and to uphold those and to embrace those and to understand what the Scripture says about them. There's so much going on around us and so much difficulty. And oftentimes what we do is we have to just come alongside someone and say, what are the foundations? Go back to the foundation. Stand by the foundation. Stand on the foundation. Hope in the foundation. I was looking at photos the other day with Will, and I had taken a picture of a friend's, I think there was something, I think at his funeral that they had, just a photo of him, and I took that picture, and it was this older man who died in his service to the Lord, I mean, he, he, he was amazing, but he died several years back, and he just was an example to me, He's somebody I'll never forget, someone I look up to, it's someone I think about, uh, when I think about standing like to the end, when I think about loving your wife, when I think about serving the church, he like comes to my mind. And uh, I, I was uh, just thinking about him, and I, I was thinking about the fact that like the joy that he must have felt in entering into the presence of the Lord and all those kinds of things that were just running through my mind as he ran the race well and got to the end. But if Christ is dead, there was no joy at the end there was no celebration at the end there there was no like he lived well and he got his reward none of that what does that mean for the living so you look at this and you say what does it mean for the preacher he's making stuff up what does it mean for the hearer they're dumb enough to listen what does it mean for the dead they're sitting there like in the grave. There's nothing for them. What does it mean for those who are alive today? Verse 19, if in Christ we have 
hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That early church, that bunch, like they were enduring great difficulty for the gospel. Many of them, the costs were just, I mean, that's what you'll read when you see what I always struggled for, for a long time with like, why is there so much talk about suffering? That's so crazy. Why? Why would they talk about suffering all the time? Why is the New Testament filled with all this language of suffering? Why not language of happiness and blessing and joy all the time? And why is it like that? Why are they living under this cloud of difficulty and struggle for the gospel? They would be those people that the world would say, even in their day, if what they're believing in is is wrong, it's cost them everything. They're bankrupt for the kingdom. They 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 are they are beaten for the kingdom. In Second Corinthians, Paul says, like, if you look at anybody, you look at me, and and you'll know that I've been left dead multiple on multiple occasions. You'll know that I've been beaten on multiple occasions. You go through this long list, and you say, if they're if these guys are wrong. It cost them everything. We are the most to be pitied. These people are the foolish people of the world. If Christ was not raised. So every Christian we say today should hold fast to the resurrection from the dead. One, because it's a historical event. Second, the second thing is... If you're holding on to a dead Christ, the consequences are just catastrophic. Like, we we have to hold on to this true gospel because the Scripture teaches it. The third thing you see here, and it's a contrast, you see really the great, amazing consequences of a risen Christ. You might say it that way. But verse 20, when you start, he says, He is the first fruits. Notice what verse 20 says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Christ was raised. That's what he said. He was raised. Like he's already said in those earlier verses, in verses 1 through 11, there were all these witnesses that saw this risen Christ. And now Paul says, listen, we really don't serve a dead Christ. He is alive. He was raised and he is the first fruits. Now, that is really exciting to me. It's, it's something I really didn't understand for a, probably a long period of time when I would read it. Uh, and I'm not saying I fully understand it now. All I know is this. In that culture, in an agrarian society, they would go out and they would plant. And the first round of crops, the early things, the part of the crop, well, there was a first harvest that would come. And the first harvest kind of gave you like this anticipation of a coming harvest, like you were awaiting something. It was like a little, it's almost like to me, uh, like when you get a little bite of the food, uh, maybe today you'll go and eat with your family, and you'll say, can I sample that just a little bit before it, before it comes out? I just want to taste a little bit. Y'all ever do that? Like, let me, I, I better check that out and make sure it's all good. You know, I always do that with fit frying fish, you know. Like, I, well, we better... Try that first piece there real quick, you know, and it's it's like that. It's, it's a it's a foretaste of what's to come, something much better. And what he's saying is, but in fact, if Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, what he's saying is this. 
this harvest, that, that present harvest of Christ being raised, points to a future harvest of all of us being raised. It's all part of the deal. If, if what's going to come forth is Christ's resurrection, what follows is something much grander in the resurrection of all of those who put their trust in Him. I think that's why Paul could say in 1 Thessalonians 4, with great confidence, we do not weep like the world weeps. We, we just don't. We don't do that because we're looking forward with a hope where we've already seen visually something come about that, that we're looking forward to. It's kind of like where the Scripture talks about the seal of the Spirit working in us that is a reminder or showing us of something that's to come that's far greater than what we know now. And that's what he's saying. Like you, The resurrection is part of what you keep in your mind so that you will live as if in the future something's going to happen. Something glorious is going to happen. Something greater than this age is going to happen. Something that a, a true Savior has come. He has died. He rose again. He's victorious. And His victory is proof that you will be victorious in Him. And that you have hope in Him. And that you have a future in Him. Now, notice another thing which you might be reminded of our study in Romans in verses 21 through 23. You see these great consequences of a risen Christ. And one of the things is this. We say, He's the first fruits. The second thing is, He is the second Adam. For as by a man came death, everybody's convinced of that, right? Nobody here is saying, well, you know, um, death doesn't get everybody. What, what, what he's saying is, no, because of the sin of Adam, if you have a problem with that, the reality is, is you miss this big point. Everybody dies. When Adam sinned, the whole human race was plunged into the judgment of God. And you say, are you sure? Well, let me give you an example. How many people do you know that live forever? Right? I mean, that's enough. What he's saying here is, by one man came death for all, and by this man, for all those who trust in him, if you read all of the text here, comes the resurrection from the dead. Just as Adam's sin plunged the whole human race and put them into bondage to sin and death, so Christ's resurrection allows all who believe to experience life. That, that's what he's Saying, for as an Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. But to each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at the coming, those who belong to Christ will experience that resurrection that is promised. The way the Scripture present it, presents it, when Christ returns... Those who are presently absent from the body will be resurrected and those who are alive will be raptured at His second coming. All of it takes place together. And that is what we see. And that is the promise and the hope that we have. What the second Adam does is gives us hope of a future. Now look at the last day in verses 24 through 28. Then comes the end. 
When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now that is a lot. Y'all think like, I was listening when Lanny was reading, I was like, man, I mean, there's a lot going on there. We're not going to talk about everything in it. But I think it's just important to note here. Jesus has been victorious over all. And we see that he is destroying every rule and authority and power. It has been done in, you could say, the victory has been won. And the fullness of that victory has not yet been experienced. I think of Colossians 2.15 where it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. It's what he did. It's uh, one of those things where you say, listen, he... His authority and His power over our enemies is shocking. He has authority over sin, over death, over hell, over all things. He is the victorious King. And yet we are watching His kingdom being expanded into the darkness. And we are awaiting the fullness of that kingdom. It is not yet. That's what some people theologians will call the already not yet of the kingdom. We are presently living in this time where we serve a risen Savior. The Spirit is working in us. The resurrection life at work in us. But we are awaiting the future. It's an already not yet thing that we live in this tension between the two. But know this, in the last day, when all is said, all the dust settles, victory has been won and the future in the kingdom will be uh, God's forever. That's what in, in Revelation it speaks of. There, there's declaration of our, the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. He'll have it. He'll own it. You'll be clear to all. When we see like even at the end of Revelation where uh, heaven, the new Jerusalem comes down to earth. Where, where the separation is no more and all things are made right. The resurrection, the, the, the resurrection of Christ gives us confidence and shows us that one of the consequences of his resurrection is that the whole world is going to be restored Everything is going to be made right and God's people will be in God's place under God's rule and blessing forever. And so the resurrection drives you to that. It reminds you of a victorious Savior. So this is what Paul says today. Our hope, when we're thinking about this whole thing about the resurrection from the dead, how do we work that out? First, he says, there's one massive event that everybody has, uh, should understand Jesus was raised from the dead and people saw it and they believed it and they lived for it and they died for it. 
And then he says, listen, if you are going to accept this concept of no resurrection from the dead, you have to think in terms of a dead Messiah. And if you have a dead Messiah, I need to stop preaching. You need to stop listening. And we need to say we're sorry to the dead. And we need to say we're sorry to the living. If that is true. But... There is a risen Savior, he says, and he is the first fruits because he lives, you will live. When we think about the harvest, we're thinking in terms of, listen, the first harvest was Jesus being raised from the dead, and behind that is a greater harvest to which we get to participate in. And not only that, Jesus is the second Adam. And just as Adam plunged the whole human race into death, Jesus, the second Adam, has brought life. And all those who trust in Him get to experience life, eternal life with Him. And thirdly, when you think about the last day with a risen Savior, you realize that He has defeated all your enemies. Sin, death, hell, the grave. He has defeated them. And one day you will see that. It was demonstrated in His resurrection as God says, I am pleased with His sacrifice. I have accepted it. And I have placed Him in the place of highest authority. He sits reigning over the universe. And one day He will return. And when He does, He will gather in His people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And they will see Him. And they will rejoice in Him. And they will treasure Him and they will experience a place where God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing will experience joy forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would allow us with the knowledge of the resurrection to live with a view to the future that changes the way we live in the present. In Christ's name, amen.